Welcome to the Kingdom Roots Podcast with Scott McKnight, the conversation designed to look at how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now. My name is Laura Taro, and today on the podcast, we have Lisa Weaver-Swartz as our guest to talk about her book, Stained Glass Ceilings, How Evangelicals Do Gender and Practice Power. This book speaks to the intersection of gender and power within American evangelicalism by examining the formation of evangelical leaders in two seminary communities. Lisa is a sociologist, and her research agenda expands her attention to the intersection of religion, gender, and culture to a global frame. Well, welcome to the podcast, Lisa. We are so excited to have this conversation, and I think to start us out, we would love to hear what led you to write this book? Yeah, well, thanks so much for having me on. This is this is great. I've been looking forward to this for a while. Uh, so the background of the book, um, I'm, I'm still a little surprised myself that this is the book that I ended up writing because I didn't originally intend to become a scholar of gender at all. It just wasn't something that was really on my radar as something I was interested in. But I was I've trained as a sociologist, so most most of the way through my graduate studies. I've always been interested in, in religion and culture, and I think those those themes are, are evident in the book, too. But um, at some point along the way, I started reflecting, as, as scholars of religion tend to do, on my own experiences in religious spaces. And I, I started realizing that if I was going to understand my own journey and experiences um, in, in religious spaces, just how operative gender had been for me. Mm-hmm. And so just to give a little bit of, of context that may be interesting, I grew up in a community that I would describe as fairly like soft complementarian. So I don't remember hearing any any sermons or Sunday school lessons about godly manhood and godly womanhood or even, um, even male headship. It wasn't something that was really talked about or stressed. But at the same time, we would never have had a woman pastor or preaching or even on an elder board. It just wasn't the way the world worked. Um, and I think that, you know, I'm sure that there were women who were in that context that were frustrated and disempowered and mm-hmm. unable to live into the, their full potential and gifts. But uh, for me, growing up in, in that setting, um, it, it wasn't a, an experience of, of disempowerment. And this is where I, as I was reflecting on this as, as a graduate student, kind of forming my, my research ideas, I realized that these, these ideas, these concepts of egalitarian and complementarian that we so often use just didn't explain my experience in this very complementarian space. Um, and, and some of it was that, you know, so much of the complementarian framework is, is around preaching. And I was not interested in those sermons. Um, and I, but I was very interested in church. I loved church so much. Um, and I, I mean, to this day, I couldn't tell you what kind of preaching we had, what kind of theology came across the pulpit. But um, I do know I was fortunate enough to grow up in a tradition and a community that sang hymns in four-part harmony. And so I know all kinds of doctrine and, mm-hmm. um, and, the, and all four verses to dozens and dozens of hymns. So I learned a lot that way. I also have really warm memories of Bible stories that were told in Sunday school classrooms. I had teachers who were just masterful storytellers. One especially, uh, Vonnie, was so good at, at making the Bible stories come alive. And I still can't read some of the Old Testament stories without, in my, in my mind, picturing the kind of cartoon versions of the, of the flannel graph characters. I am dating myself here, but you know, some of you will remember the flannel <laughs> graph characters. Um, and we had food. My congregation did a great job of, you know, 
tables and tables of, of bread and green bean casserole and marshmallow jello. You know, I can picture these in my head. This is what church meant to me, right? And all of these things, mm-hmm. the music, the food, the Bible stories, they were constructed by and orchestrated by women. So my experience in this this setting was not one of male domination and, and female disempowerment. So by the time I'm reflecting on kind of that paradox, I had been through a pretty significant process of reevaluating um, my own cultural and theological commitments and had found myself in spaces that we would call egalitarian that were more, uh, more intentional about putting women in places of, of leadership. But in those uh, context and communities, I also walked with women who had really, really perplexing and confusing experiences. And I ended up having some really bewildering experiences myself, too. And so I thought, OK, there's something there's more going on here than just what the complementarian egalitarian divide can get at. And so this this book project um, is, is my attempt at trying to flesh some of that out. Hmm. So good. Well, um, and you worked with Christian Smith, is that correct? Yes, among others. I was at the University of Notre Dame where I did my graduate work. (laughs) I've been reading him for a long time. (laughs) I mean, I feel like I've read him for 25 years. And uh, so, and I I really respect a lot of what he's done. He's really, he's really clarified things. And I read James Davison Hunter before him. And so I have great appreciation for the sociological approach and so i i just jumped right in and you in your book stained glass ceilings you don't exactly make uh, a non-sociologist feel like they don't know what they're talking about you've done a really (laughs) good job of of uh, transferring it into prose that people can follow and today my wife and i as we were walking around the lake Uh, in our morning walk. And she told me about your book first. I never, I would, I may not have seen it, but Beth Barr had mentioned it on Twitter. And then Chris said, Scott, I think this is a book you'd like. So uh, then I contacted, well, yeah, how, how we get these, these books. And um, I really, I really have enjoyed it. And it is uh, one of my best reads of the year. Um, it has the sociological theory at work, but at the same time, you let stories and illustrations uh, carry the day. And Lisa, what I, I think what dominates the book, but it's so subtle that you have to wait to the conclusion to see you put it into the fresh terms, is that you're talking about the power that stories have in our lives and in these two seminaries. Uh, Southern Seminary, of course I'm interested in anything about this because they seem to be in the news all the time these days. And Asbury, because I've been there and um, I have friends who teach there. And so uh, I thought, this is this is a, just like, like for me, a book made in heaven. I've, I've, read, <laughs> I've read like six, shell, six feet of books on evangelical history. And for no reason other than I'm just crazy about doing it, I just read it. But I found this book to be a really fresh insight. And and before we get to a question I have for you, in a sense, we a lot of us know at least at least we think we know a lot about Southern Seminary. But the um, the fresh insights for me were how you measured in a cautious way and a kind way, but you weren't afraid to tell the truth 
about Asbury Seminary, because that's that's a story that's not so well known and could live in the world of the ideal rather than in the real. So uh, but all of this is tied into stories. And I found I found your story theme so important that uh, I was carried along with it more than realizing, hey, what what she's doing in here is telling us the power of story. So I wonder if you could just tell us uh, your your brief summaries or however you want to say it, of the story at Southern Seminary and the story that's at work at Asbury Seminary. Yeah, yeah. This really jumped out at me when I was um, trying to figure out what was going on at, at Southern Seminary. So my, my methods, uh, for those who may not have, have read the book, um, I did a lot of interviews with uh, with students. So I did a lot of ethnog- and ethnographic and other methods, too. But a lot of this comes from uh, the voices of students themselves. So their dominant story, this complementarian story at Southern, um, is really a pretty straightforward retelling of the biblical narrative in a way that fuses gender hierarchy and gender polarization uh, together with just the the classic traditional telling of of God's work in the world through the biblical text that has been a part of the Christian tradition um, since, since its inception. But the story really takes shape in the book of Genesis. And and here, with with the creation of the world as good, part of this goodness, according to the story that, that they themselves call the gospel story, Part of the goodness of Eden is that it's ordered in a really particular way. Uh, it's very, very neatly and orderly designed in, in ways where everyone knows what their job is, what their place is. They fill those places in all as well, sort of a, a functionalist utopia, to use, to use the sociological language of functionalism. Um, and, and the gendered categories of man and woman are, are the operative categories here. So uh, the man following Adam's lead is the, the leader the provider for the family unit, um, and later that kind of merges into church leadership as well. The woman is the nurturer and the follower, so everything, again, very neat and tidy and, and, and hierarchical in, in a sense, although I think they, they might take issue with, um, with that and say it's more about roles than, than about um, hierarchy. But this beautiful kind of uh, ideal is is disrupted, of course, in in Genesis three when the fall happens and sin enters into the world. Um, and and the interesting thing about the way that students narrated this fall is they even brought gender into that. So it's not just that sin entered into the world because the man and the woman disobeyed God; it's that they failed to live into their gendered roles. So Adam failed to keep an eye on his wife and to act as a leader in in the household, and Eve failed to submit to her husband and to consult him in her decision-making. And so these these themes then really thread their way all the way through the biblical narrative. Of course, in the New Testament, the Pauline passages uh, where Paul is giving instructions to some of the the early church, um, saying things like, I don't allow a woman to preach and she should uh, should learn in in quietness and submission from her husband. Those those things, of course, um, just support support that story. Uh, And and then um, they also include the more recent history of the Southern Baptist Convention and uh, Southern Seminary 
Murray's history itself. And I, I talk more about that in, in the first couple of chap- chapters of the book in, in ways that um, just kind of, again, tie it together with this theme of, of gendered order. And, and throughout this whole narrative, uh, disorder is associated with women's leadership and ambition uh, and order, hierarchical order, kind of comes across through salvific restoration. And even Al Mohler, the, the current president of Southern Seminary, is a really key kind of symbolic character in characterizing this and, and um, continuing it. And the brilliance in this gospel story is that it's not just historical. It's not just a, a narrative that is told in words. It's embodied and lived in an intentional practice within the community. So not only to give you an example of what this looks like, not only do men in the community learn to be decision makers for their families, uh, to be sort of the ones to hold on to the finances, and those are, those are important and, and valuable to them, too, in, in kind of living into these, these scripts. Um, but they also look to Adam's role as the, the provider and the, the, um, the one who, you know, worked the fields. He was a farmer. And, um, and they look at his kind of wild domination of the natural world and, and kind of take their cues from that. And you've got to remember, these are seminary students in suburban Louisville. So this is not a hunter-gatherer kind of situation, right? Um, and maybe some of them do go hunting um, other times and, and places. They probably do. But um, one other way that they nod to this, this script is by eating a lot of meat. And the way that I figured this out, I know, I know, it took me a while to get to this. Um, it's a small thing, but it really is meaningful to them. Um, the way that I figured this out is one time I was getting ready to interview this uh, the seminary student, and he was walking through campus with his wife, um, because wives are very and a very important part of, of the, the campus community, too. And um, we were going to have our conversation. She was going to go get lunch, and then they were going to go eat, eat their lunch together. And I heard him giving her his lunch order. And he said, um, she was going to the, the campus cafe, and he said, make sure you order me a He-Man sandwich. And I thought, He-Man sandwich? What the heck is a He-Man sandwich? Um, so, so when I went to the campus cafe later, I looked up on their, on their menu board, and sure enough, there's this, this sandwich called the He-Man sandwich. And, um, and I asked, the, asked the, the person behind the cash register, like, like why, is, why is it called a He-Man sandwich? And she kind of fumbled around for a minute or two, and then she finally said, well, it's, it's obviously, it's because of all the meat. And um, so actually, just last night, I was curious if this is, if this is still part of the menu. At, at Southern, and, and I Googled it, and you can you can do this too. Um, it is, in fact, still a part of Southern's menu, and I, I just I grabbed the description off the internet. So I'll, I'll read the description of the He-Man sandwich. is thin-sliced roast beef, turkey, ham, bacon, cheddar, and Swiss piled on sourdough. I've got four different kinds of meat, right, associated with this <laughs> this manly uh, lunch lunch offering. Um, and I was another example as I was in a, a, a chapel service once where where the speaker was talking um, about something. He was giving some sort of illustration of what what is truly like glorious and beautiful. And um, his illustration was was the Brazilian steakhouse experience that he had just had. <laughs> that he couldn't imagine anything more glorious than these bowls and bowls of bacon and all the meat on the on the swords. And you know, as as he of course is. Um, kind of owning and dominating the stage with his with his bearded presence, and so um, that's just one example of of how they have used very very specific kind of lived experience to narrate this this story in an embodied and really really compelling way. Um, and it, so I think the the power of of this this story for for the community is that it, it kind of borrows biblical authority and imposes it onto these gender gender hierarchies mm-hmm. and and again like just con- connects uh, the present with the past, 
in, in ways that these actors can really even become a part of the story themselves. Wow. Well, we have we uh, have intensive courses at times at Northern, and we go out to eat. And one of the places we go out to eat for lunch is called City Barbecue. And I've had more than one uh, woman say to me, this is kind of a manly place, isn't it? <laughs> so it's all meat. It's all meat. Yeah, yeah. So that's, yeah that, that's that I think symbolism does transcend the Southern Seminary somewhat. <laughs> yeah. That's pretty funny. Yeah, yeah. So then you all had also asked about the um, the story at Asbury, um, which yeah. is is also interesting um, because it, it has a lot of parallels with with Southern story. And this one is much more complicated, and it took me a lot longer to kind of decode. And I finally realized that there's actually more than one story at Asbury. There are, there are multiple stories, and the first one, which is is actually starts out similarly to Southern's gospel story, uh, is what I call the equality story, and it, it too is der- derivative of the the biblical text. It starts out in Genesis, so it sounds very familiar so far. Uh, and here in this story, men and women are created different. So there's still a, a sense of, of a binary gender difference, um, but also equal. There's every every attempt is made to remove hierarchy from the narrative of the Genesis creation account. And this this theme of equality threads all the way through again through the whole biblical story, especially landing in the New Testament. And these students loved to talk about the New Testament and the early church. Uh, this they they went on and on and and with just a great deal of enthusiasm and the sparkle in their in their eye when they told me about understanding the context of the New Testament churches was just so helpful. They knew the political context and how what the church was dealing with, and that was so helpful for them in understanding how equality worked itself out in in that era. And the, their favorite thing to talk about was was the clobber verses, the ones that are often used um, by complementarians to to prevent women from taking roles of authority. Um, but they love to explain that if you understand Paul in this context, you will see uh, that he's actually radically subversive and he's freeing women in really, really radical ways. And so they extend this uh, to the present in in less embodied symbolism, I would say, than Southern's gospel story. But uh, I think what they do is they conclude that the best way to continue this legacy of equality and what Paul is doing in the New Testament is just to de-emphasize gender. I think making the assumption that if, if gender is unimportant in the church, then it won't hold anyone back. So in practice, what they do is is kind of following this pattern. They will hire and enroll women just like men. They will allow and encourage women to preach just like men. And they have women pursuing ordination, of course, just like men, right? Um, and that's their, that's their kind of package of equality. But then there's the secondary story that, that I call the different story. Uh, but it is never named at, at Asbury. And it, it took me a while to see because there's actually not a lot of biblical ties in here. Um, the one ex- exception is the Genesis creation account. And, and again, where the, the binary essential gender difference is, is kind of assumed. Students do insist on it. Uh, but nobody could really tell me what it means. They really resisted giving any specific to it, I think, in, a, in a reluctance to sound complementary. And they didn't want there to be any um, any confines on, on women especially. Um, they just had this vague sense that, that difference matters and that it matters for marriage. And that's, again, that's about it, except 
later they they oft, often talked about you know, the metaphor of the the church being the bride of Christ, which they talked about in kind of vague and ambiguous ways. Um, but really, the story is embodied not so much in words as it is in in their actions. Um, and what it means is that the significance of gender, because it's removed from the public churchly sphere, it's really relegated to marriage. And this really impacts women, especially. Uh, because what it means is that there are, all these women are free to preach and free to pursue ordination and all of these um, these positions of authority, but they are not freed from the expectations of of godly womanhood. Um, they would not use that terminology. Almost everyone there knew about complementarian godly womanhood and manhood and didn't want anything to do with it. Um, but this is very much an, an evangelical space. These students are interacting in the same, um, gr- many of them growing up in kind of pseudo-complementarian or complementarian households. Uh, and so, you know, these, these expectations of femininity and motherly nurture still affect them. And the other thing that they're not freed from is the, the, the structural inequalities of just being women in the United States, right? We're a much more egalitarian society than some places in the world. But there's a lot of uh, patriarchal threads that are still among us and, and affecting us, and those don't go away, uh, of course, when we enter sacred spaces like churches and seminaries. So together, these these two stories, um, and there's so much more to be said about both of these because they're both so rich and thick, but um, I think together what these two stories at Asbury mean are that women are just dealing with a lot, and, and they're very much unable, uh, most of them that I talked with were unable to process and, and address the things that they were struggling with um, because of the fragmentation between these stories. So it's you're, you're right to notice that this is a harder story than I think some people, and certainly that I was expecting to find. Um, but I, I think one of my conclusions is that this, this egalitarian framework, it's not creating and generating patriarchy itself necessarily, but it is obscuring its influence. Hmm. Hmm. That's so interesting. Scott and I were talking uh, before we started uh, because we're both at Northern Seminary, and Scott was saying that as he was reading your book, he kept translating it or thinking about it in the context of Northern. And I was saying that there's so much uh, you can't know about a culture until you're in it. Um, you can visit, you know, you can check out a class and you can kind of get hints of it. But until you're really immersed in it, you don't know what story is being told or how it's going to be translated into the ethos of the location. And I was saying that I've kind of been in this egalitarian bubble you know, for the last several years at Northern and then also in the denomination that I'm in is egalitarian. But there are also other spaces that I move into as a church planner and as a pastor that um, are very complementarian. And it's always jarring because I've kind of gotten used to this other story that's being told in other places. And it's hard to kind of translate as you move through those different spaces. So I think that's really interesting. Um, I'm, I'm wondering as you're talking being immersed and like looking academically at both of these cultures, what was surprising to you um, as you looked at both Southern and Asbury? You know, were there any surprises as you were doing your research? Yeah, yeah. Oh, there were a lot of surprises. Um, And I think that's just the nature of, of sociological research, right? You open yourself up to whatever is there, right? And and so I think um, my, my, probably my biggest surprise at Asbury was 
um, just that this this is a community that is 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 I mean I would say it's reinforcing the patriarchy in in ways that are disempowering to women, but it is a healthy and fairly well-functioning community at the same time. Mm -hmm. And I think we're having a lot of conversations now broadly about, you know, what kind of gender dynamics and power dynamics are happening in these kind of toxic, unhealthy, authoritarian structures that we've seen in places like Mars Hill and even Willow Creek. Scott, your work on on this, I think, is is so valuable and so important. Um, But it was really striking to me that that's not the story at Asbury. Now, there are definitely exceptions and certainly different. Some people will experience it that way. But overall, most of the people that I talked with really experienced this place as a healthy, life-giving and empowering environment. And so it just, it really did surprise me. And I don't know, maybe it shouldn't have, but um, this is like, these are kind of two true stories to hold intention that it is all, it is a healthy environment and it still is obscuring these really disempowering patriarchal Mm. threads that are are still there. Mm. At Southern, I had a couple of so many surprises there, but two two things um, that really stand out. One is that uh, so this is a very very reformed Calvinist kind of neo reformed orbit, and when I think of the reformed, especially the neo reformed tradition. I, I think of kind of a, a hyper rational, very logic driven. Um, I don't I didn't expect the kind of experiential and embodied socialization that I found there. Right. Like because even if you if you go and look at like the Gospel Coalition's blogs, you don't find a lot of like contemplative practice or kind of encouragement toward imaginative creativity. I, I mean, it might be there occasionally, but that's not the tone. Right. It's very much. Mm-hmm. So I expected to hear more of that, again, hyper rational. Uh, a lot of attention to the nuances of systematic systematic theology. And those things were definitely there, but um, they weren't the things that were really compelling students and making them take hold of these stories. They were much more compelled by the lived experience of growing beards and using fountain pens and making pies for the women, decorating pumpkins, uh, which which took on this transcendent significance, which is, and I don't, I don't think of that as a, as a reformed emphasis, but it really, really stood out to me. And the other thing that surprised me at Southern was uh, the women's spaces. Um, I was really surprised at how much of a gift these women-centered spaces like the Seminary Wives Institute, they were to the women who were inside them. Um, these were these were spaces where women's voices were centered, their experiences mattered, uh, they were giving and receiving nurture in ways that were just really, really lovely to see. And you could definitely make the case that they needed these these spaces in the first place because they were so disempowered in, in, other, in other parts of their lives, which is also true. But as I think about the, what I saw there in contrast with what I think a lot of the women I met at Asbury were just really thirsty for, uh, it really just stood out to me. What a gift and, and a kind of a surprising blessing I think these, these spaces were to those women. You know, um, Lisa, those are interesting surprises to me. Uh, and I think I would have been surprised by them too. But I, I was just sitting here thinking as you were saying this, in most spaces, I think this would be true at Northern, and I'm sure it's true at Asbury, and it, because I know so many grads from Asbury. And I know 
I know I have friends who teach at Southern Seminary. Don't tell anybody this, but I, I do. Um, former students who are teaching there too. Um, relationships will transcend ideology or theology. So if you really admire Al Mohler, you can, you know, what he thinks might not be as important as the fact that he's been kind to you and he's helped you and he's gotten you a job. And he, I mean, one thing, and I think um, successful seminaries, successful institutions are relationally thick and uh, the ideology in a sense, many times will just prop up the relationships I know that's not proper. I know that's not the way we're supposed to think, but I, I really do think. I remember when I was a college student way back in 1974, all right, I listened to a lecture by a philosopher from Michigan State named George Mavrodis. I'll never forget it. He said, we do not change our mind on the basis of reason. We change the, our mind on the basis of people we trust. And I thought, this is a philosopher, a world-class philosopher. And he's, and, and I, you know, I've, I've been doing this for, it's been about 50 years since that, since I heard that statement. Um, I have seen this time after time after time. Relationships will transcend ideology. Well, we're not going to be able to go forever on this, but I do want to know uh, some questions. The uh, final question I have for you, Lisa, is... What can the evangelical culture in the United States, and I think both of these seminaries fit in that culture, do to comprehend the power of the masculinist patriarchal cultures, stories? What can we do to undo them? And what can we do to create a different story? Now, look, this could go on for, you know, you and I could probably talk about this for two hours, but just wondering what your thoughts on on that kind of eyeball question <laughs> Yeah, I mean that that is a, it's a big question, but it is the question, right? When we yeah. look at at this is um yeah, I think kind of sobering to think about how deep these stories run. So, I have I have I think I have a four-part answer for you. Is that okay? Yeah, that's great. That's <laughs> okay. Great. So, first of all, I would say I I think that theology does matter. Now, clearly theology isn't the only thing that matters, but um, if it if it didn't matter, we wouldn't see such striking differences in the outcomes of these two communities. So I think we need better theology and specifically theology that honors the experiences of those who are at the margins. And I think I, I do see some of this emerging now. Your your book, Scott, on, on Tove, I think pushes in this direction. And my hope would be uh, to see things like that in conversation with theological work that's coming from others of, of a variety of different social locations. Um, so I think I see a lot of hope for that as, as we become more and more aware of how our experiences as men and women and white people and people of color and all of these intersections really make a difference in how we see the world and how we think. So that's kind of a theological level. Um, and secondly, kind of an organizational level, since my, my book and my story is really about organizations, one thing that I've noticed and observed just in my own experience is, is that a lot of times organizations will try really hard to hire women. And that's good. I don't want them to stop hiring women. But I do, I do notice often how hard it is to find 
qualified good women. I'm using the, the scare quotes because, you know, that can mean a lot of different things. And then often when uh, women are hired, sometimes it's frustrating to see that very little difference is made, right? So I wonder what would happen if we would focus less on trying to hire women and focus more on trying to hire both women and men, uh, and maybe spe- especially men, who are aware of the burden of these patriarchal stories um, and, and aware of the burdens that they place on all of us, not just on women, mm-hmm. and who are ready and eager to, to collaborate with humility towards some of the better storytelling that you're asking about. So then third, I I would also call for more attention to structure. Uh, This is something that I think is especially hard in conservative evangelical spaces because, my goodness, American evangelicals love to think on an individual level um, and and often struggle to think structurally. Um, But I think this is is where, a little plea for for my own discipline here, I think sociology, um, also political science and social work, the the social sciences, uh, this is is their job, right? This is what we're trained to do is, is to see structure. And so um, my hope is that, you know, this this could be more of a conversation between theologians and, and social sciences um, in, in some of the, the ways that could kind of flesh out, um, yeah, better conversations, better stories. And then finally, I think um, I, I can imagine people reading the book, listening to this and thinking, well, my goodness, this is so overwhelming, right? Like, and especially I think of like men or, or pastors, male pastors who may want to really make a difference in here, um, but not, you know, be in a, in a place to you know, re- recover the social sciences. And I think one thing that I would say on an individual level is that it is really valuable and important to listen to women's stories. And it sounds like such a simple thing, um, but just the the willingness to hold tension and to hear and to listen can say so much. I have one story last, well, a couple of weeks ago, uh, the college where I teach, the, the students put on a production of Godspell the Musical, and I love musical theater, so I took my kids to go see this production. And right before the show started, I felt someone sit down right next to me, and I looked over, and it was a local pastor that I just kind of know a little bit, not not very well. And he said, Lisa, I'm in the middle of chapter four of your book. And I thought, oh, my goodness, because chapter four is a, re- is a really hard chapter to read. And I thought, what is he going to say? Uh, but he said, you know, I'm still struggling with it. I don't know if I like everything you're saying. I'm pretty sure I don't like everything you're saying. But thank you for writing it. And I would like to get coffee and hear more. And that wow. just meant, I know, I know, I meant, it just meant so much just that he was willing to hold that intention and, um, and even initiate the conversation at all. So that's not going to change the structures for sure, but those interactions can be extremely meaningful, and I think it's one place to start. Lisa, my uh, daughter and I have a, a book at the publisher, another one. Uh, we call, it's called Pivot. It was good. I wanted to call it Tove Unleashed, but they, they wouldn't let me call it that. Um, so they didn't want Tove in the title again. Uh, so it's about transforming cultures. How do we transform cultures? So I'm interested in your question uh, and your answers. I'm, um, I was stunned by reading uh, a book by Peter, Peter Shine, I think is his name. It might be his son's name. Um, and it is a book on organizational culture. And to transform a culture, this this was an amazing statement to me, to transform a culture when you have a top-down hierarchy that can make things happen and when you can get buy-in from the people in the community takes seven years minimum. 
So I'm, I'm of the view that we need to take the long haul view of beginning now with the practices and habits that will shift the culture away from a complementarian, patriarchal, masculinist, misogynist culture to um, an egalitarian and equal uh, culture. And I also believe that for that to happen, we have to empower women and minorities in positions that have power that make decisions. Um, I, I believe, I don't know, you might agree, you would probably agree with this because you're a systemic thinker. Uh, if you let men create the culture, it's going to be male. It's going to, they're not going to create the culture that women would create. So we're going to have to really share power. And I think that is, you, you probably know a lot more about power than I do, but that's, that to me is a really big issue in the transformation of culture. It's the elephant in the room that needs to be faced with honesty and transparency. So, but Lisa, this is a, I think this is a marvelous book and I'm grateful to you for it. Um, you have, I, I like sociology and sometimes churches and evangelicals get nervous about sociologists because they might say things that other people don't want to hear. But I thought you were fair, you were honest, you were kind. I thought there could have been a knife on that end of that paragraph and you just moved on. It was gentle. <laughs> uh, but at times you told stories that did the work that needed to be done. And I want to thank you for it. And um, just hope you just keep keep writing in, in this field. And I'm sure Laura, Laura experiences this in very unique ways in our culture right now. And uh, so I'm sure she has words to say too. <laughs> oh, when Scott was writing about this, I reached out to him and told him I went to a dinner for church planters. It was a collection of church planters gathered, and I was one of a very few women in the room. I was the only female planter in the room, and I introduced myself to two other male pastors and introduced myself as a church planter, and one of them asked me where my husband was like looked around the room, like, where is he? Point him out. And I said, um, he's at home with our kids tonight. He's making them dinner and, you know, shuttling them around to their various activities. But I thought, oh my goodness, yeah. like just that story, not having eyes to see or mm -hmm. ears to hear, um, that there could be a difference was just sort of a surprise. But yes, the story is very relevant in so many ways. Oh, so I goodness. so appreciate your work on this. Oh, yes. Well, thank you. Thank you both for leaning into this conversation. I think there's, I mean, there's so much more to be said. And I, I, I hope that there are many other books and conversations that follow this up. Uh, because yeah, this is, Scott, you're exactly right. This is a long, long game. It took decades and decades to develop these stories. And it's going to take mm -hmm. us a long time, especially if we're interested in um, multiple Multiple voices. It's going to take a long time to re-recenter and right. reconstruct. Very good. That's so good. Well, thank you to our listeners. I hope you've enjoyed this conversation, and we look forward to being with you next time as we continue our conversation on how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now. <laughs>